I was reading a, a small article today saying that you, you might be too busy if, and one of the points was you're chronically late, and I was like, okay. All right, so here we go. Uh, we've got some really cool things going on. Love to start off with a question after I get to this um, announcement. So this Sunday, 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 we're bringing back birth through 18 months in the second service. So at 1030, uh, we'll have birth through 18 months uh, during the second service. So get excited about that. Um, I'm really excited about hearing from last week and the conversations that you had in your groups. Um, if you uh, missed it, I've been printing off the questions. Uh, if you like the questions, print it off so you can read them. They are at the back um, on the table when you come in. So certainly feel free to grab those. On the back of that is the schedule that we're trying to follow this fall. Um, so you can have that. I'll probably just keep printing it. I don't know. I said I wasn't going to, and then there it was in the document, so I just kept printing it. Um, yeah, I was just really encouraged by hearing about your guys' time last week. And you know, one of the things that I want to continually uh, help remind us or encourage us with is you know, we aren't, when the questions are formulated, we're not looking to formulate a question that has an answer. So as we gather in these discussion groups to discuss, we're not looking for agreement. So if you have a particular disagreement with somebody, that's okay. In fact, I actually think it's great. <laughs> so we're, we're working through this together, and we don't all have to agree on every minute detail of how we're looking at this. What we need to do is love and care and respect for one another uh, as we engage, and so... Hopefully we can just keep that going. Um, the question that I have, which is, I have interesting news on this. Did the tribe of Reuben invent the deli sandwich? And I was like, interesting question. I mean, after all, what is a Reuben? It's a very Jewish sandwich. The challenge is the Reuben has sauerkraut on it. And sauerkraut was invented in uh, actually, it was invented in China. <laughs> How do I know this? Because um, it was approximately 2005 or six, and I was in the finals of Garden Line Trivia on South Dakota Public Radio. And I am not making this up. And the final question for me to go into a tiebreaker was, who invented sauerkraut? Poland, China, Germany. And I'm like, there's no way it's China. This is a total trick. This is a coin flip. Wrong. It was China. While they were building the Great Wall, they started the process of fermentation because they were having food shortages. China, sauerkraut. Therefore, the Reuben can't be created by the Reubenites because they didn't have sauerkraut. 
So there's my answer. And let's pray. <laughs> oh, Father God, we just come to you tonight, and we just thank you so much for this time and this place where we get to gather together, and we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy as we enter into this text, and we look back at how you have not only intersected with your people and this world, but also how you've chosen to communicate that to us. And so we pray that we would um, honor you through how we handle this text tonight, and we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would uh, speak into this place, that you would speak into our lives, and that you would help uh, illuminate this text for us so that we can grow in our understanding of who you are, and, and we can grow in our faithfulness to you and our obedience uh, to you and to the covenant that we have with you through your Son, Jesus Christ. So be with our time tonight, be with our discussion groups, and we do just pray for those folks that are not here for one reason or another. We pray for health and safety and restoration and wholeness in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so on that note, we are in uh, Judges. We are in verse 16 of chapter 2, and we are going to be going um, through the rest of 2 and into three. If you remember last week, we were talking about this double intro, double prologue, so we're still in that um, prologue. We're looking at the unfaithfulness uh, of the, the nation of Israel, and so in verse 16, we get, we get this new phrase, uh, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Who, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of all their enemies, saved them of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways, so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left the nations, left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan, it was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might, not, might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Lebo-Hamath. And they, they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses." So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons 
and they served their gods. So it's interesting here, we get this, again, the second introduction, the second prologue that lays out what's going to be happening throughout the rest of the book of Judges. And so that's kind of this interesting view and perspective uh, into, in some ways, it's like the ultimate spoiler alert, here's what's going to happen, even though we know what's already happened. So it starts off in this, next, in this section that we're starting tonight. The Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. So again, this term judges, it's more of a leader. It's not a judge as we think of as judges, meaning um, law folk, but it's a leader. It's um, somebody who's trying to get to the people to uh, remember the covenant and to follow after God and to become obedient uh, to the things that God has uh, instructed them in. And in verse uh, 17, well, first of all, one thing, that we, um, one thing that we always have to remember when we're reading this, we are not Israel. So, we are not the Israelites. So, let's just, this is not in any way us saying this is how we are to function on a political level. Because Israel is a theocracy at this point, being guided by God, and so we, we aren't Israel. Okay, so that kind of goes without saying, but I said it anyways. Verse 17, Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Now, if you remember back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and the Shema, the Shema starts out, what's the very first word of the Shema? Hear. Not like hear, but like listen. Hear, O Israel. Okay, so we get this interesting uh, piece from the narrator who's communicating to us that, that the very nature of obedience to Yahweh for the Israelites is their ability to not only hear, but their ability to respond to what they're hearing. So they're not listening. And I understand there's a very big distinction you know, between listening and hearing. Hearing is literally hearing words. Listening is actually paying attention, <laughs> if you know what I mean. You're like, I hear you, <laughs> and I'm not listening. Okay. Yet they did not listen to their judges. And it brings up this overarching question of who do we listen to in our lives? Who do we allow to speak into our lives that when they say something to us, we actually listen to what they've said and then we respond to the thing that they have said? So when we hear something that somebody is telling us, instructing us to do, how do we make a decision on whether or not we follow through with the, the instruction that they have given us? And, and so we get into this larger question that's kind of been uh, bouncing around in my head as it relates to this book of Judges. You know, when we hear something, 
what makes us respond and follow after the command that we've received and what makes us not listen or to reject the thing that somebody has told us uh, that we should do. So how do we understand uh, or how do we allow, who do we allow to speak into our lives? God is saying that I bring these people to you, the nation of Israel, I'm bringing these folks to you, these judges, and you're choosing to intentionally not listen to them. And we see this very clear distinction that what, are, what is it that they're not listening to? Well, they're going after um, these other gods, meaning, as we'll see, Baal and the Asherah, which is an interesting uh, conversation that we'll talk about when we get there. Some of the language that we read in the book of Judges is meant to alarm us. So when we hear or read this word that they hoard, or a different translation, they prostituted themselves to other gods. I'm pretty sure the last time I sinned, I didn't think that I was prostituting myself out to another god. And maybe if I thought of it that way, I would rethink how I was going after these other things. So they turned away, they turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked. So we see this big contrast. Remember, Joshua has brought the people into the promised land, and they renew the covenant at Shechem, and everyone is doing great, and God brings them into this place, and the people, in essence, are like, whatever, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want. And we see this interesting familial connection of the kids doing the opposite of what their parents did. (laughs) It's biblical. (laughs) It's biblical. Like, we're just going to do the opposite of what our parents did. In this case, (laughs) that doesn't make it good. So the Lord raises up judges for them, and, and, and he saves them from the hand of the enemies. So we're going to see this cycle of them being saved from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. And so again, it's going to be this question of everything was going so well. What happened? And why does God do this? The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. So God is moved because the people, his people, are hurting. So what we see throughout the book of Judges oftentimes comes across as this view of God, as a vengeful God, as a God of war and a God of justice and a God who comes in and just wipes people out. And a few of the commentators say, if you pay close enough attention, the book of Judges is a book of the graciousness of God. And that every action and every judge cycle is a picture of how gracious God is in loving his people. You're like, oh, I'm not really into the Old Testament God because he's kind of that vengeful God. And yet, the picture that we get of God in Judges is actually a God of 
grace and compassion. Because the interesting thing here is the people are oppressed. God punishes them. They're in pain. They cry out to God. God delivers them. What they don't do is actually repent. Check this out. They come in, they, they disobey, they don't listen to God, they're in this bad spot, they call out to God, God says, yes, I will come in and I will rescue you from your pain. And rather than repenting and changing, repentance is this idea of changing the direction and doing things differently, they seem to set aside their behavior for a period of time, following after God, but they don't ever actually repent. And yet God continues to extend grace to them. It's fascinating. And he just keeps happening. Verse 19, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. It doesn't go well. <laughs> So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died. In order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. So we have this very interesting uh, depiction of why it is that God is doing what he's doing. Because the narrator or the writer tells us that, that God is choosing to leave these people in the promised land. And why is, he doing, why is he doing that? He's doing that to test them. And as we talked about last week, and we'll continue to talk about this idea of them being the nations, being a thorn in the side of the Israelites. Because when they are existing in the same space as the Israelites— they are going to struggle with being obedient only to God. They are going to struggle with this test that God is placing in front of them. And he teaches them this idea of war, and it, it brings up all of these interesting questions around what is God doing by choosing to keep war as a very key component within the nation of Israel. Because, let's be honest, God could have just wiped everyone out. He could have taken out all of these nations. He could have driven them out. The nation of Israel could have just walked in. Everything would have been great. I mean, look at what he did at the Red Sea, and we could just go through all these miracles that God has already done. He chooses not to do that in this instance, and the narrator is telling us this may be why he was doing that. And so then we get this list of nations, which, which we saw back in Deuteronomy chapter 7. If you're doing some uh, Judges and Deuteronomy comparison in your spare time. No? 
Okay. And what happens? And their daughters they took to themselves they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Big, big, big problem. Because every time there's this intermarrying between the Israelites and one of the other nations, there's this commingling with these other gods, and it's the marriage of political power and all of these things that are going to be the demise of the Israelites. And so we're getting this preview of what has happened and what is going to happen. And then we jump into the first judge. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) That's going to be a recurring theme. So if you're keeping track, that's going to come back. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathaim, so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel the son of Kenaz died. So if you remember back to last week, we see Othniel being presented very early on because he does what? He wins the battle. He gets the girl. It's a great Disney story. The girl says, hey, Dad, I want some springs. Othniel comes back. Look at the contrast of what the writer of Judges is doing. He says, this is what's wrong with the nation of Israel. They're intermarrying. End of prologue. And then he gives us this judge who is an incident of intermarriage in the positive sense because this Kenite marries this daughter of Caleb and becomes, or yeah, becomes this very powerful connection and he does amazing things. But don't miss out on the fact that it is God who is doing this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, so God takes them and he sends them and he allows them to be oppressed. The people cry out to God. Again, we see this theme coming back over and over. The people disobey God. God gets angry. He sends them away. Why? Because they've forgotten to serve God. And then God raises up this deliverer. Verse 10, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. This is a phrase that we're going to see uh, a variety of times throughout the book of Judges. And it's fascinating because as we talked about this summer, when when we talk about the Holy Spirit, how often is it that we think of the Holy Spirit as a New Testament concept in the Bible When in actuality, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, exists throughout the Old Testament and plays a very key role within the book of Judges. And here is the first example of that. So Othniel has this experience of the Spirit of the Lord upon him. 
And we want to say, well, what does he do? Like, give me some details. We get no details. He judged Israel. He goes out to war. And God delivers this king into his hand. And he wins. Like, what else did he do? He doesn't have to do anything else. The point of this is we are seeing this is how it's supposed to work. So within the book of Judges, this is what God had planned and designed for his people and how they were to function. God has a person. His spirit comes upon them. They lead the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel follows after God and everything seems to go well. Except, this is a big except, and it's something that was a curveball thrown at me that I didn't see coming from 100 miles away, and David pointed this out from his commentator. We get this phrase, the land had rest. So is the writer of Judges trying to communicate that the land had rest because there was no war? Because we get that in other places in the Old Testament. Or is he speaking in more large-scale terms, meaning the people of God were doing what they were supposed to do as image-bearers of God, think way back to Genesis... For, for this commandment of humanity to care for the land. And so we see this shalom taking place when everything is right in the land. Or is it that the land has rest, but the people are doing things other than being obedient to God? We're going to find out, hopefully. We had this hilarious conversation that I wish all of you could have been a part of that we probably could never recreate again. And some of you are like, please stop talking about that right now. You're distracting us. Okay, I'll stop talking. And the people of Israel, again, starting in verse 12, or continuing in verse 12, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. (laughs) Like, wait! Like, we had um, 7 to 11 delicious slushies of good things, not even of good things. We had like two verses of good things, and now the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel And they took possession of the city of Palms, Jericho. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So it seems like it was really fast, but as we see, it was approximately 40 years. Everything was going well. Why was it 40 years? Was it actually 40 years? Or is this just a uh, grammatical phrase that gets used throughout the book of Judges? We don't really know. Does it matter if it was 39 years or 41 years? Probably not. (laughs) 
So the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So we're going to see this succession of this downward spiral. And again, some people want to talk about it, the cycle of judges, uh, but most commentators are like, it's not a cycle. It's more like a black hole (laughs) that is getting progressively worse. So Othniel is seemingly, we're starting at the top, and we're going to see the people get worse and worse and worse and worse every generation or series of generations that we talk about in the future. So the question becomes, what exactly is happening? Why is it that they just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say the lack of repentance kind of plays into that factor. The lack of turning from what they had been doing and going back to God is different than making a side lateral step saying, whoops, God, sorry I did that, I'll do better, is different than I won't ever do that again. Like if you ever have to apologize to somebody, (laughs) you know, we've talked about this before, right? Like, I'm sorry that, that you're upset about that <laughs> is a non-apology. To say, I'll try not to do that again, that is repentance. The Israelites are not repenting. Or I think of it a little bit like this in this digression of the Israelites. You know, you get all excited about having your pants not be so tight. So you like get serious, and then you always have this pair of pants. Mine are navy blue. I bought them 10 years ago. I remember the exact day that I bought them. And you're like, okay, I'm going to keep them because I'm going to get back to that place. And then you get so close to that place where you can actually button those pants, but they are so uncomfortable that you could never wear them in public. And you feel like you've arrived, except you haven't arrived. Then six months go by, and you're like, I can't even get this over my legs. How did I get here? Because six months ago I was in a good place, and now I'm not in a good place. Am I the only one? Every time the yo-yo goes on, you're like, "Uh, do I change my standards and get rid of those pants? And by get rid of them, I mean give them to common goods and move another pair of tight pants into their position. Because those pair are tan. And Nikki bought them for me on a girl's trip. That's kind of what's happening with the nation of Israel. They go on this yo-yo cycle where every time they go back to their sin, it's worse. And yet, God is gracious to them and loves them and provides a deliverer for them. So this time, it was 18 years of pain. And we can't miss the irony The people don't want to be obedient to God, the commandment and the covenant of God. And so what happens? They have to be obedient 
to Eglon, which sounds an awful lot like eggnog, which you'll understand why there's a connection in a second. Then the people of Israel, eggnog is not to be drank before Thanksgiving, in case you're wondering. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. He was a southpaw. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about a foot. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. I mean, like, you can't make this stuff up. Like, if we were writing a holy book, we wouldn't include any of this stuff. Like, literally. Like, no. Like, hey, I'm going to write this holy book, and I'm going to include this very detailed story about this fat man. Like, no, you're not. God did. Like, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And the king, this is the only time Eglon speaks, silence! And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed. You can tell who hasn't read the passage. (laughs) Because it's all a shock. Uh, And I laugh every time I read it. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, and he did not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. I mean, like, seriously. Like, this is not a bedtime story you read to your kids. (laughs) Hey, kids, let's open the Bible. I've got a story to tell you. It's about a very fat king who gets killed, and then his servants can't save him because they're embarrassed because they think he's going to the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. And what is so shocking, well, there's a number of shocking things about this story, but what is the big contrast that we see between Ehud and Othniel? Well, one guy's right-handed, one guy's left-handed. 
We don't know anything about Othniel. We don't know if he's right-handed. We assume he is. We don't know it. We don't know anything. And yet we get this very in-depth, detailed, singular story about Ehud and how God uses him to kill this Moabite king. And again, there's some, just some great irony. The, the tribe of Benjamin means son of right hand. <laughs> so you have a left-handed guy from a right-handed tribe who comes in and he's, he's a straight-up assassin. This is the God that we serve. I mean, is anyone else just like, what? And it really causes us to wonder, like, why is it that the narrator of Judges is telling us this story in such specific and minute detail about this individual who God uses in the most unexpected way to kill this king. It's fascinating. And after all of this, God blesses his people with 80 years of living, or did he? That's for you, David. 80 years of rest. Again, notice the writer goes out of his way to say that the land had rest for 80 years. And one of the interesting things or peculiar things that we're going to see throughout the book of Judges is the use of random weapons. It's like, is this Fortnite? No, it's not. This is like real life. But again, we have to ask ourselves, why is it that God is choosing to use Ehud to assassinate this king in this particular way, and then because of how this book is structured, we get this very detailed description And certainly, as we go throughout this book, we're going to see stories of different individuals where you're like, why that person? Why does God choose to use that person in that way to do these things? Is it that he's trying to get their attention by not using the people that you would think? Or what is it that God is trying to communicate to the, to the listener of Judges and to us about how he functions? Because again, when we come to the text, the main character is God. And we're trying, to, we're trying to understand who God is and how he functions and how he has functioned within not only the narrative of Scripture but throughout history and ask ourselves, God, who are you? And how am I to relate to you? 
and how am I to behave in this life as someone who identifies as a follower of yours? One other thing. Notice, again, God is communicating that the people are created to worship and serve something. So as we see throughout the book of Judges, we're going to see the people choosing what they worship and choosing what they serve time and time again. And if they don't choose correctly, i.e. worshiping Yahweh, God gives them things to worship and serve that, that from our perspective, of course, we say, that's ridiculous. But upon further examination, we might not say it's as ridiculous as it is. So then we get Shamgar. If you're Shamgar, you might want to argue for a little bit more space. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And, oh, by the way, he also saved Israel. That's it? That's it. I get one, I get one lousy verse. I kill 600 people. And I kill the Philistines, which we all know that the Philistines are the biggest, baddest, worst people in all the Old Testament. I have this ox goad, which isn't even a legitimate weapon. It's what you use in livestock. And I single, I mean, I go John Wick and single-handedly kill 600 of these people, and God's like, you can have one verse. <laughs> what do I need to do to get two verses? <laughs> he saved Israel. <laughs> like, oh my word. And again, we see this very interesting thing, right? We see Othniel, kind of vague description of who he, do, who he is. And, and, oh, by the way, he saves the people. We get Ehud, the left-handed southpaw, who does this thing. And he gets all these verses. And then we get Shamgar, who only kills 600 people, seemingly single-handedly. And he gets one verse. We're like, what, what kind of book is this? <laughs> and it's fascinating because the next verse, which we're going to get into next week, but it's fun to, to jump ahead. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, we're not shocked, after Ehud died. So wait a second. Was Shamgar alive before Ehud died? How is this all working? Well, when we look at the structure of judges, there are 12 judges, six major judges, six minor judges, that all have a connection to a tribe of Israel. So 12 tribes, 12 judges, six plus six, 12 judges. And so is Shamgar just this throwaway, ju this throwaway judge? Because, oh yeah, oh, we only got 11 judges. Let's, uh, Shamgar, remember that one guy did that one thing, saved Israel? We better put him in there. So it, part of that is what leads to our questioning of how does the narrative timeline flow of the book of Judges, which we're going to continue to work on and discuss together. All right, so I'm going to have you guys uh, and gals, you folks, you guys, 
uh, that were here last week, go to your groups. Those of you who were not here last week, I will put you in a group. Do not think for one second that you're going to get to go to a group and pick it yourself. Remember last week, we cast lots. We very biblical, random selection. The Holy Spirit does his or her thing through this process. So those of you who are in groups, you can leave. Those of you who are not in groups, come up here and I will handpick you into your groups. 